Hello and welcome. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode, I spoke with Ben Falco, the CEO and founder of Autonomo, a company that's revolutionizing the world of car data. Autonomo offers the leading data platform and marketplace for sharing and utilizing vehicle data with over 40 million connected cars and 4 billion data points. The opportunities are far-reaching for this unprecedented amount of car data from traffic management in smart cities to emergency services and smarter insurance policies. Ben was full of insights from his journey founding Autonomo and bringing the company to IPO at a $1.26 billion valuation. We spoke all about his vision for Autonomo and how this kind of data can completely transform the way we drive, the way entire cities are planned, and much, much more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ben Volko. Ben Volko, welcome to the Bigger Picture podcast, and thank you for taking part in the Unicorn Series. So the goal of this conversation today, the Unicorn Series in general, is to give a fresh perspective into the world of high-tech, startups, and entrepreneurship. There are plenty of startup podcasts out there that I'm sure you're very aware of, but the idea here today is to look at the same world of high-tech and startups and billion-dollar valuations through the Bigger Picture lens. That means zooming out a bit and, for instance, looking at the whole journey of founding and growing Autonomo to where it is today and what that process entailed. What did the creative process look like? Where did the idea come from? What were some of the big challenges that you needed to overcome during this journey? Were there any moments of doubt or uncertainty? And how were these resolved? And then looking at the entire industry of automobiles and AI and how these worlds have been converging and what the future of these industries might look like. Even before we have fully autonomous vehicles that are completely self-driving, there's still so much that can be improved and automized in the driving experience by using AI, which is exactly what Autonomo is doing. So to start, can you give our listeners today a bit of background on Autonomo and what you guys have been up to? So great to be here, and thanks for having me. So a bit about Autonomo. I think Autonomo was founded um, about five and a half years ago with the understanding that with all the changes that are happening in the transportation and mobility and automotive industry, data is becoming a a central stage player. And with those changes, data needs to have the right tools, the right infrastructures and the right support in order to perform well in the central stage. And this is what we do in Autonomo. I can definitely double-click on it and talk in a bit more length. Yes, please. So at Autonomo, we offer the data platform that helps to take all the data that is being generated um, by vehicles and help to build value out of it. Almost in any direction um, that we look where the industry is about to go, electrification, shared mobility, autonomous, we find out if we open the hood that data takes a big play, a central role there. And at Autonomo, we offer the data platform that was built and tuned to the emerging needs of the transportation and automotive industry. And we help to build value out of this data. 
How do we do it? We have a data platform that um, connects to the databases of the car manufacturers. We like to call them OEMs. And we take the data that is coming out of tens of millions of connected cars. I should have said that uh, more than 90% of new vehicles that are being sold going out of dealerships today are connected. They have a SIM and a modem inside. And amazing. Amazing. Like a phone. And yeah. very soon, 100%. And what we do, we take all these huge amounts of data and we hope to build value out of it. Maybe there are smart cities that can utilize this data to make the city safer and better. Maybe there's a utilities company that can use this data to understand why they need to deploy more charging stations to reduce the queues. Maybe there's a, this amazing um, emergency service that knows to identify an accident and notify the emergency room and save five minutes every time. That saves life. And maybe there's a cheaper insurance that is 30% cheaper because you drive well. This is what we do. We have this platform that knows to take all those huge amounts of data, clean the data, make sure it's ready, and enable those use cases. The last thing I'll say maybe is about the motivation or, or why it's so important. So every business is an ecosystem. In our ecosystem, there's the car manufacturers, there's the drivers, and uh, all those services. And if you want really to be a marketplace that connects different parts of an ecosystem, you need to understand what makes each one of those tick and try to align, to sync the ticking. If not, <laughs> it will be out. of. So the car manufacturers, for them... Data is, is the future, it's the next big thing, huge opportunity, recurring revenues, high margin, everything they were dreaming about. But if you go and knock on the door of the CFO at Daimler or BMW and you ask him about data, he will tell you that it kills his business. Why? Yes, it's a big promise, big potential, but today it's very expensive. The modem is like $300 and then you need to pay Vodafone or AT&T. Then you need to store the data in the cloud. The business of making cars, of bending metal, is a business of single-digit margins, very small margins. All of a sudden, you need to cut from those three margins, $200, $300, $400. It's problematic. So they're looking for ways to use the data, to make value, to build an ROI. That's the, the OEMs. Car drivers, they love the fact that there's Wi-Fi in the car, like all those <laughs> cool services. Drivers today want a smartphone experience. If you come to a young driver and you tell him, what do you prefer? You prefer this sexy service that connects to the car and helps you to save you a minute a day to find parking? Or do you want another 20 horsepower? The answer, I believe, mostly will be, save me one minute a day. I don't need a 20 horsepower anyway. I never use it. Also, drivers want this connectivity. And the last part of this uh, triangle of value is the services. It could be insurance companies or financial services or, or fleets or smart cities or department of transportations. For them, they can use data to make their business better, to make it more efficient, to cut costs, to make more revenues. So that's the triangle of value. And hopefully I managed to show that there's a strong alignment between all those corners of the triangle. And this is what we do. We try really using data to build a win-win-win for everyone here. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, in this kind of ecosystem, as you said, everyone's interests are aligned, but it's kind of hard to integrate between them and to communicate between them. And that's the role you guys are taking, showing how each of these players, how this is 
something that's very much of value to them. As you said, for instance, with the car manufacturers, I'm sure for the CFO starting out, the ROI isn't obvious. How does this modem in the car, what are we actually going to be able to do with it? So you guys are making that very clear. So can you tell us about some specific use cases that show how Autonomo has been revolutionizing the driving and transportation experience? Definitely. I'll really share some examples of how we try to make an impact on everybody's life. Let's talk about smart cities. Okay, most of us live in urban areas, and using data can really improve our living. It can start by... We have cities that are asking us for simple things like speed from vehicles to tune the traffic lights, or they want accident notification to find about dangerous places. We have uh, millions of cars that have sensors in around the tires that know to fill the roads. And then you can identify which roads need maintenance, which roads could be risky. There incredible. Is, it's, it's incredible. We, we know to map today sewage coverage on, on roads in the U.S., not sure anyone wants it, but we know <laughs> it's really very detailed. We provide, um, I'll give you another example. I mentioned some safety services because I love it. I think that today, one of the problems with accidents is that you come to an emergency room, nobody has a clue what happened, and they start to run all the checks on you. Usually when you go to a doctor, they ask you, okay, what's wrong with you? you what's the problem? And Based on this, it gives you a perspective. With accident, nobody knows. You go and you run the full, the full, all the tests. Think about the future, and not that far future, where the emergency room knows what was the speed of the impact of the car. Was it hit from the right or the left? How many people were in the car? Did you have a seatbelt? Did the airbag open? He knows to analyze what could be the problem much better. Because if you were eating 200 miles an hour with no seatbelts, Maybe you suffer a bit different than someone that was driving 20 miles an hour with, with a seatbelt and a helmet. Just an, an extreme example. The second thing is to notify in real time to the emergency vehicles, because every second is super important in accident. And think about automatic notification. The car knows, oh, I've been in an accident, notifies the emergency room. Automatically, they send the emergency vehicle. You don't need to wait 5, 10, 20 minutes until someone notifies them. I'll give you a bit less uh, dramatic examples yeah. also. So we work with um, insurance companies. Okay. okay. So let's assume your favorite insurance company. They'll come to you and we'll tell you, Ronnie, if you're a good driver and you share your data, you get 30% discount. If you're an horrible driver, you pay the same. You got nothing to lose, right? You share your data. Either 30% discount or I pay the same. We do some exciting stuff uh, with toll roads. Okay. Today, if you want to go through a toll road, you need to put this box in the car. It knows to... Why to put the box in the car if the car is connected to the internet? <laughs> you don't need yep. to put boxes in the cars anymore. We do amazing things with uh, electric vehicles. I'll give you one example. I, there are dozens, but um, let's assume you have a leased vehicle from your employer. And today, it's a fuel car. You, keep, you go your fuel, you keep the receipts, you bring it back, you get reimbursed. What happens if it's an electric car and you charge it at home? How do you get reimbursed? How do you get back to all the electricity? Today, it's on your expense. It's your own. So we know to look into the car data and to say how many kilowatts you put in the car. And then you have a report. You go back to your employer and you tell him, look, that's the electricity I put in the car. It's a bit more complex, of course, because what is stopping you from inviting the neighbors for charging party? Come and charge <laughs> in my back, backyard, you know, my employer pays. 
So we check the, the location and the ignition and um, I can talk for hours. As you can see, it's very exciting. So many use cases. I, I'd like to talk about something that's very close to my heart and that's parking <laughs> and how you guys have been improving that. <laughs> so we do a number of things there, but one of the fascinating, for me, it was fascinating. I didn't know. So we have parking companies that we help them with data. And, and the most interesting part of data in my view is what is called ultrasonic sensors. You know what is ultrasonic? I do not. Okay, now you're going to get a demonstration also. Very good. The ultrasonic sensors, it's the parking sensors. It's the two-two-two-two. Okay, yeah, yeah. They drive, they walk also when you drive forward. And we have um, customers or partners that are, we're helping them to get data. We collect it from the car. The car drives and it knows to scan the side of the road using the parking sensors. And then you'll get a notification on your phone saying, oh, we see 300 feet up on the left, there's empty parking spot on the side of the road. Because the car drove there, the parking sensor sensed the side of the road is empty. Incredible. Incredible. Like the parking sensors. Who yeah. that there's Life-changing. Like, Life-changing. Life <laughs> you won't be looking on the parking sensors the same way. Yeah, exactly. What cities have you guys already started with that? We have engagements um, in both sides of the pond. I will tell you that um, the parking ecosystem in Europe is more complex than in the U.S. A um, number okay. of reasons. Part of it is the fragmentation. U.S., it's one big country, and something is popular in Detroit. It's usually the same service that is popular in California. But Europe is so fragmented. The parking app that is used, popular in the U.K. is different than the part one popular in, the Bel- in Belgium or Netherlands or Germany. So every country like have a different ecos- parking ecosystem. Now, it's funny that we, you know, we talk about parking, but people spend, I think, about uh, 20% of their time in urban areas on the roads looking for parking. Yeah. It's a big issue. So No, I mean, I was working at a company a few years ago, and there were people in the company who lived out very far from the city, but they would get home before me because my drive is 10 minutes, but I would spend 40 minutes looking for parking, and they would be home in 30 minutes. and park right away. So it's these little things that can make such a difference. I agree. One of the interesting things at Autonomo is that um, you come across so many industries with brilliant people, with use cases that uh, you think, how did they think about that? You know, we are just a messenger. We are sending the data from side to side, but sometimes we come across amazing things and really see the power of data. We had a credit card company, an American credit card company, that approached us and asking for card data. And I told them, you're a credit card co- company. Why do you want card data? And the story is, is that they believe that they refuse to give credit cards to too many people. Maybe you've done something wrong 30 years ago. You, you took a loan. Okay, a bad, bad credit when you were five. And those people today are refused, are still suffering and refuse to get credit cards. And they want to use, they believe there's a correlation between your financial behavior and your driving stuff. If you drive nicely, you don't accelerate like a lunatic, you don't break <laughs> like, a, like a maniac, you, you don't ignore flashing red lights, maybe you're someone that could be trusted with the credit card. Incredible. 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 And that would make sense. I mean, impulsivity, for instance, is you can see that manifest in all sorts of different aspects. So if someone were to drive safely... I guess they've learned from their mistake of taking that loan uh, a few years ago. Exactly. 
So in terms of, for instance, traffic management and, you know, complete smart city designs, what are you guys hoping to see in the future with Autonomo? So for us, one of the, I think, fundamentals, I would call it, is really to see how we can use data to create value, to do good. And we all live in cities and urban areas and this all this segment of smart cities that therefore is I think important for me, I think for everyone here. We really see data taking more and more center role in this segment. Uh, we see also by the way huge budgets coming in, you know, with Baden one trillion or whatever, hundreds of billions of dollars coming in to make infrastructure better. We see really those cities, those department of transportation, those agencies using data more and more. I think the cost of maintaining a mile of road today in the U.S. is a couple of tens of dollars a year. And it's being done the same way for like 70 years. A couple of guys driving around on a F-150, taking pictures, writing reports. <laughs> and, and really using data, you can do it all in real time. And we see cities asking for really information like road conditions and, and places that have a tendency for accidents. The today electrification is taking place. So a lot of the requests we get in are, can we look how fuel-based vehicles are moving around? And can we use this information and try to analyze and predict what will happen when electric vehicles will come? When, in what areas they will be driving and when we need to deploy charging stations? And God forbid everybody comes home at 5 p.m. and start to charge can the yeah, power, grid. power grid support it? Or if I have a big fleet of 6,000 cars, I'm UPS, and 5 p.m. everybody comes to the parking lot and start charging, will the neighborhood go black? So we, we see that maybe two trends. One is using data to improve, but also using data to confront what is the changes that are coming. Uh, mobility as a service, electrification, later on autonomous vehicles. And here again, the use cases are amazing. Um, even things like um, weather are being analyzed, the number of passengers in vehicles, because really maybe all those cars have one driver and it drives alone, or maybe it's five people in the car. So they want to understand these many use cases around really smart cities. So in this whole process of you know founding and growing Autonomo, what were some big challenges that you faced during this process? You got a couple of hours? or <laughs> All the time. So I think it starts from day one. I, it started with jumping to the water. Okay, for me, Autonomo, I think it's um, play number four. It's becoming harder. When you start your first company, you jump to the water, you don't know how many sharks, you don't know how... how how shallow the water, the rocks there. When you do it the full time, you already know it's, it's not a logical thing to do. <laughs> You're almost on the verge of suicidal. So it's, it's yeah. more frightening to know. You know the water are very cold and there's no way out. So it's harder. Every time becomes a bit harder to start, you might say. Some things are easier, but some things are harder. Because you're not ignorant anymore of all the risks that come with it. Exactly. You, you don't have the luxury of being uh, ignorant or being... Uh, Wide-eyed and naive. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The value of being naive. So starting is hard. I can tell you that when I started, having said that, I was naive. My original idea for Autonomo 
was okay autonomous vehicles are coming data is going to be fundamental let's use data to make all those autonomous vehicles um, smarter and I came with this story in Q4 2015 to the VCs and luckily I it came from Bessemer which are amazing investors Bessemer told me Ben it's complex enough as it is nobody knows when autonomous vehicles will come and that was like end of 2015 they were saying a year two years it's all here they told me Ben we've we've seen it before you want to control your destiny let's start maybe with we love you we love the story let's start with connected cars autonomous cars maybe they'll come in two years but maybe they'll come in 15 years you, you want as much control on your destiny as you can so that was another thing that um really challenged on like day one, I needed to do a small pivot. And pivots continue all the time. There are challenges, of course, on funding. There are challenges on management. And, you know, we can tell me where to stop. We can go for hours. I'm wondering, you know, when you had the idea, even with the pivot here and there, how do you remain faithful to the vision? I was luckily enough able to stick to the same North Star. So you navigate differently based on topography and the changing landscape, but you have your own North Star. I think that uh, really sometimes when you are in the trenches fighting day to day as a CEO of a startup, you don't have a time or the ability to get your head up and, and look around. And that's where the partners to the journey are, are so important. Uh, the managers that work with you, the board, the investors that can help you make sure that you stay on track towards the North Star. It's very important to have a sounding uh, board. And on that, how do you pick the team around you? What qualities are you looking for? I think that um, I will sound like a broken record, but you definitely want people that are much stronger than you. I understood it years ago. You sleep better at night, the stronger the people around you. And, and it's a marathon. You want to sleep well at night. <laughs> I believe also that um, problems don't disappear. We have a tendency to take problems and, and say, okay, I have so many things on my head. Okay, there's a problem. I'll handle it in six months, in 12 months. I have a problem. You know what? I'll put this tape here. I'll close it. Maybe it will be okay. <laughs> Don't ignore problems. They have a tendency to pop up in the end. One of my lessons learned from my past experiences is do everything the right way. Don't... Cut corners. Cut corners, exactly. Yeah. Do it right. Make sure that you got the right people. They got the right uh, roles. They got the right titles. They got the right responsibility. That it's very clear and transparent what they expect, what you expect. If you have a problem that you, you see, think how you're going to handle it because this problem will pop up again in, in a week, in a month, in six months. But it will pop up and the future won't be easier. It's like, you know, those people that saying, okay, I'm going to start my, I'm young now, I need to save money, I'll do my startup when I have money. And then they say, okay, I'm, I want to get married now, I'll do my startup when I'll get married. Then they have kids. Okay, the kids will grow and things don't go away. And problems you won't handle them today will come up again. They might be even more severe. Okay, so... Maybe I'm elaborating too much, but really, I think it's, it's really all about picking the right people, working in a transparent manner, handling problems when they rise and not burying them on the side. Now, I made my own fair share of mistakes many times, but uh, at least that's the book. Okay, you, you yeah. might move from the book, but uh, you need to understand if you make a, 
if you do something not according to the book, that it's not according to the book and you're taking a risk here. Yeah, I think this idea of not ignoring problems, you know, there's this kind of analogy where a problem is like this little dragon. And if you don't look at it, then the dragon grows and grows behind you until it's something that you can't even actually deal with. So I think that's a very important message of being very aware of the little red flags you know, that are easily ignored at first, but that they can really grow into real problems. I'm with you. And I think the future, most of the problems in, when you look in the future will be harder to handle and to fix. It's better to, yeah, it's not fun handling with problems, but that's part of the responsibility, I guess. And Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, what do you think of the surge of unicorn companies that we're seeing today? I think like everything in life, it has pros and cons. Let's start with the pros. I think it's great to see people that have been working hard, getting the success and the stamp that, uh, of success. I think it's great for the ecosystem here in Israel. It's great for the investors, for the entrepreneurs, for the managers, for the employees. It's great for the country, you know, all the tax that comes in, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. That's the positive side. I'm sure like um, if I'm trying to think what is negative, I think the negative, if I'm thinking loud, I think that the negative is the risk of all the people that I, I just uh, talked about, investors, entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. managers, employees. They wake up to a colder weather where the valuation is coming down and all of a sudden, you know, we start to talk about things like down round and companies that worth less. And then they might take an impact in their pocket. But I know the scrutiny and envy, all oh, those companies, no revenues or small revenue. Valuation is what people are willing to pay. Nobody can say if the company is too expensive or, or too cheap. Everybody might, can have an opinion and is allowed to have an opinion. But in the end, those companies brought money in this valuation. Someone put his money, someone very experienced and said, I believe it's worth X. And maybe X is... To I, for some pe- other people, but I really think that if we think about the Israeli ecosystem, the, the Israeli environment, the, the investors, the employees, there's much more pros than cons. And yes, some people don't like the evaluations. It's okay. <laughs> I agree. I mean, uh, the valuations themselves, it's a matter of opinion, like you said, and it's not an exact science and it's trying to understand what a company is worth and you're kind of betting on a winning horse, you know, and you're, it's all an estimation at the end of the day. So I wanted to ask as well, why do you think we're seeing a surge of unicorn companies coming out of Israel? I mean, it's not news that, you know, we're the startup nation as, uh, as the nickname goes, but what do you think is one of the reasons that we're seeing the surge coming from, from this little corner of the world? It's a very good question. Yeah, someone called us uh, not Startup Nation anymore, but uh, Spark Nation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that the joke. I really, part of it, and, and I will be repeating things that my, my colleagues were saying. You know, I, I don't have a lot of, um, I believe, things that weren't told before. But part of it is really the maturity of the Israeli ecosystem. We are not running to sell the companies for the first bidder. We learn to build companies for the long term. Um, in the past, it was very common to take the CEO and move him to the U.S. Now the CEO is in Israel for 
We can talk about amazing companies like Fiverr and Wix and marketing. We were saying that Israelis don't know to do marketing. <laughs> Again, Fiverr, Wix, Lemonade, the CMOs are in Israel. So I think we learn to do more than just good coding. We learn to build companies and, and to manage them. Still, we have a lot to learn, but I think we're improving. I think also the pond became smaller. We, got, we see more money coming in, more investors. We can mention Insight Partners, for example, that they have uh, investing heavily and very successfully in amazing companies here in Israel. So I think the money became more global. I think the maturity here, I think also... It's the macro, it's the lack of uh, other options or other options are less interesting for investors. You know, inflation is still uh, small. You know, the, um, it's all a question of alternatives. And what kind I, of alternatives are you thinking of? So those investors that uh, put those monies into SPACs, into VCs or directly to companies, they, they need to decide what they do with the money. They can put it on the stock exchange, they can keep it in the bank, they can buy real estate. They can go to mature companies or they can go to Israeli technology companies. And I believe that they are much smarter and much more experienced than, than me. They do the risk-reward analysis and they decide that a good portion of this amount should go to Israeli companies, either mature VCs in startups in high valuation or companies that are going public. I'm sure they know what they're doing. I can tell you that... Um, we raised money from Fidelities and the BNP Paribas of the world. And there was a lot of scrutiny on autonomous going public, low revenues, high valuation. It's all right. But can you blame BNP or Fidelity that they don't know what they're doing? They've been doing it for the last hundred years and they wrote the book. So yeah, there, there's a risk. And I guess they're doing it as uh, hoping that autonomous will become the Tesla of uh, connectivity. And I think we are well positioned to be there, but there's definitely a risk. There's a chance we won't make it. But uh, I think those fidelities are saying, okay, there's going to be a Tesla of connectivity. It's going to be one of those X companies. And we, we're going to do a bet and we're going to lose on X minus one. But on one of them, we're going to do a home run. And, and that's how this industry is working. Wonderful. So I think that in this topic, there is a bigger question of how do we deal with success? and also. How do we not let it go to our head and not be fooled by the high, for instance, because a crash is always possible or a dip uh, in the road? So how do we stay prepared even amidst a unicorn bubble, for instance, where, you know, wherever we strike, we find gold? How do we stay realistic? It's a very good question. And for us, that's part of the day to day. I think you all the time needs to... Aim to the sky, but keep your legs on the ground, if it makes sense. Yeah. You need to be optimistic and you need to enjoy the success and, and you need to dream and run and, and aim to conquer the world. But in the end, you still also need to remember at the same time, there are so many risks. And yes, maybe people are saying that that's amazing and that's amazing and that's amazing, but still there's the day-to-day -day reality. So I think it's mainly really managing them the reality and the expectations. I think um, one, I'll, I'll share with you something personal. One of my biggest worries doing it for the third or fourth time is to start to think that I know everything. Because you've been successful. You, you, you have, you know, those um, stamps of success. And yeah, you, you know, you, you've done it before and you dealt with this situation before and that's what you've done and that's what you'll do now. And 
one of the things I keep reminding all the time myself is that um, I don't know anything. And to listen and to consult and, and don't read past success or get into your head. Uh, yes, um, success and experience are super important, but you shouldn't uh, assume you know everything. M- maybe if I go back and you heard me saying it before, I really believe that the right recipe is great. You need to MI and you need to dream and you need to be bullish and you need to take risk. But in the same time, you need to do it in a calculate way. Okay, you take a risk, but what's the B plan if it doesn't work? You're going to raise this money. You're going to buy this company. You're going to launch this product. You're going to... Okay, but if it doesn't work, what's the B story? And that's, in my view, part of the responsibility also. I raise money from investors. I have employees. Yes, I want to run forward. I want to conquer. I want... But I need also to... What happens if this battle doesn't go according to plan? What's the plan then? I think that's part of the responsibility I have as a CEO, really show the way, uh, share the vision, share the dream, make sure everybody buys to the dream, but also have the responsibility to say that if things won't go according to plan, what's the B plan? And nothing goes according to plan, right? That, that's one of the lessons in life. I have an investor that um, have been investing in me for many years, and every time we have a discussion, for example, on budget, he likes to say that um, the L part, the losing, losses part, the money that goes out, that always happens. The P part, the profit, sells. It can happen, it doesn't happen. So the bad things always happen. The good things, maybe they happen, maybe not. That's an example he likes to use. But um, hopefully it makes sense. I really think it's all about managing risk, um, making sure you got in a calculated way. You shouldn't let risk... Um, stop you, you definitely should let it slow you down. You want to run in the right speed to make sure you got your back covered. That's my view. There's an interesting balance here of, as you said, you know, aim for the sky, but still have your feet on the ground in the sense that you take the risks and you dream the dream, but still have in your mind the knowledge that not everything is going to work out as planned. And we might have to recalculate and uh, reevaluate the course. And, and I think that's a tough balance to do. Yeah. I'll, I'll share with you that um, one of my previous companies, I think it was Bessemer, fastest exit in history. Okay. They invested and the company was sold in three months. Wow. We started getting, that was a company called Traffics, which was acquired by F5 Networks. While we were... Working on the investment agreement with Bessemer, F5 already knocked on the door and said, we want to have a serious discussion with you guys. And I needed to make a decision. Do I tell Bessemer, guys, sorry, not interested, I got some initial uh, investment uh, acquisition offer, or I continue to with Bessemer, we, t- we make the investment, and then maybe there'll be an exit, maybe not. And I decided to continue with Bessemer. Why? Again, to manage the risk. What happens if I don't take the investment and the buyer walk away? What do I do there? I have no money in the bank. That was one of the reasons. But also I understood that sometimes the more money you have, have raised as a startup, makes your exit higher. Because when a buyer comes in, and, and those guys have been around the block, he looks into your cap table, the different investors, how much they owe, how much they, they put, the money they put in, and he knows exactly to say, 
okay, they have 20 percent, they put this amount of money, what makes them tick? So, and the more money you brought in and the bigger name investors, of course, what makes them tick is more amounts. So that's maybe an example I'm sharing of me in 2011, need to make this decision of um, should I take the, f- what kind of risk I'm going to take? going to take the full risk or I'm going to do calculate risk. Yeah, maybe I'll be diluted a bit. But if the M&A doesn't happen, I got a fallback strategy. I paid the price because I saw the company and I was diluted and I got less money that I could have taken if I wouldn't have brought those investors. But again, I think it's about managing risk. Yeah. And I think that approach was probably made it easier to sleep at night. I mean, even, even if you were diluted, it's still... You got a plan B. Yeah, you got a plan B. So if you were to advise a young entrepreneur opening his first company today, what advice would you give them? Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's good advice. I'm not sure that's the advice you were looking for. I think that you need to understand it's a long-term commitment. It's almost a Catholic wedding. It's for many, many Mm -hmm. years. It's not a... It's not one of you, you got commitment to your employees, to your management, to your investors. It's, it's not a mood thing. You, you are signing. You are the last one leaving the building. So you need to be ready for this commitment. Build the strongest team you, you can. And for some founders, having co-founders is the right thing. For others, doing it alone is the right thing. And support doesn't need to be a co-founder. It could be an advisor, investor, partner, whatever. Don't do it alone. Consult a lot. Find yourself a sounding board. We talked about problems that doesn't disappear. If mm-hmm. you have a problem raising, maybe there's a problem in the story. Okay. Now, there are two approaches here. One says, no, I'm not going to give up. Yeah, it's hard, but I'm going to fight and I'm going to make it happen. And maybe not the highway. Maybe I won't raise from the best VC in the world. I raise from a accelerator, angels, whatever. And that's good enough. There were amazing companies that were built this way. Another approach says, no, if the best VCs in the world say no, maybe the story is not perfect. This is the time to, to go and change the story or to think about it. Because once you raise money from angels, you're on the journey. What I'm trying to say maybe is don't ignore the f- feedbacks from the market. Use them to think, to tune, and to see if that's really the right thing. So we talked about find partners. Listen, really listen. A lot of people don't, including me, don't listen enough. It's, a, it's actually a problem of men, right? <laughs> we like to talk, we don't like to listen. So I think that's be ready for the commitment, be ready to listen, and be re- ready to consult. Right. And as you said, listen to the clues along the way. Be- yeah. Because they're always there. They're always there. And we choose to ignore them and we all humans and that's right. And many times, by the way, you, you, you choose to ignore them and, and in retrospect, it was the right thing. But listen, at least you make a decision by, without ignoring the clues. So what do you wish you were told when you first started out? I was very naive. I was an entrepreneur that um, I think I started my career as an entrepreneur out of frustration. Okay. Frustration with what? So I was working for a large Japanese company in the UK and projects were starting and stopping and, you know, it was coming from Japan and yeah, cancel this, close this, send this. I said, I don't want to spend the the rest of my life like doing small things without understanding the picture or or 
it's like I was giving my heart out and working on those projects and they're being closed and shifted. So like Sisyphus. A bit like that. Yeah. I, I said, okay, I want to control my destiny and, and, and I was lucky. I wish, if I need to think what I wish I knew, I wish, look, I made so many mistakes. I wish uh, that I knew how to choose a problem better. My first company, I chosen a technical problem, not a commercial problem. I always okay. think that um, the right today, I believe that the right way is first to find a commercial problem, then to think about the technical solution. I not see. To start with it. I'm an engineer, so I saw <laughs> technical problem. Said, okay, let's solve it out. I think uh, you need to think how you about the future, how you raise money, from who you raise money, what's the long term plan, and. What partners you bring to the role? I brought twice co-founders to the um, to the trip, and it didn't work. And I need to blame myself for that. What didn't work? I think what the one of them. I think it was the day before we were signing a term sheet. He called me in the evening and said, "Look, you know what? I'm too old, and the salary is smaller than I wanted, and I'm 42. He was 42 at the time, and." It's not the right thing for me. And, you know, I had the term sheet. I need to sign it. And now tomorrow morning, I need the investors are waiting for the term sheet signed back. And think about you need to call them and say, look, guys, I know that you've been talking to me and I brought another guy with me. He's not in anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so try so, to convince them to sign the, still the term sheet. It's a problematic picture. It's a problematic picture. And here at Autonomo, I came with the idea. I brought someone that I know for many years, a smart guy, very nice guy, and offered him to join and just didn't work. And we, we parted ways nicely after a couple of months. So I think choosing a co-founder, either doing it alone or alone, or bringing co-founder is, uh, can close the companies, can bring them down. It's very important. What, what kind of qualities... Do you look for in a co-founder? You're asking someone that felt wise. Yeah. It's like, exactly. <laughs> well, you learned. <laughs> yes, hopefully. First of all, I learned that not everybody needs to have co-founders. Some people are solo players. Okay. And that's and, okay. And that's okay. VCs like to invest more in teams than solo players. And maybe the valuation will be lower. Maybe you need, but you know, it's better a solid solo player maybe than a team that is shaking I learned also that it's very important from day one to agree with the co-founder roles, responsibilities, and most important, if it doesn't work, what does it mean? How do you separate what you take, what it takes, what happens? Because it can happen. And uh, it's better not to ignore problems and to touch it the day one and don't say, okay, it's too sensitive. I don't want to talk about that. You, you need to talk everything. Understand that being a friend of someone doesn't mean that you can walk closely with them. It all sounds like wishes. But it's but, uh, true and it's people true. ignore these truths. People ignore and you know, you, you, you're so motivated. You want to get it done. You want to move forward. Maybe it's the only guy that is available. And you, you do decisions that you might be regretting in the long term. So at least really, as you said, don't ignore them and make sure that you got a B plan. If it doesn't work, how do we separate? Have an agreement. What's your roles and responsibilities day one and after 12 months? Um, history is full of companies that, um, I think that uh, the stat statistics is that um, most companies fail because of the co-founders uh, not able to work together and not because they run out of funding or product market fit, but really the founders or the management cannot 
walk together and scale it up. In the dynamics themselves, what do you think causes this inability to work together? Yes, a very good question. I'm not sure I have the answer. I know it's a psychological question, yeah. but if you had to kind of uh, speculate, you know, from what you've seen, what are the usual patterns where, where people have a hard time communicating and understanding each other? My bet is that if we double click, we find ego playing a big mm-hmm. role there. Why do I listen to him? I'm smart also. I have more experience. I hope to bring the money. Customers love me. I'm the co-founder. Now he brings the CFO. Now he brings the VP sales. Where is my role? I'm more important. The dynamics change. The company grows. There's always this tension. I can open an academy to picking up co-founders now. <laughs> so some of those change, tension, I believe, with co-founders could be there from day one, and you just mm-hmm. choose to ignore it because you want to see the positive things. Some of it maybe could pop up because the, the shifting topography of the company and maybe everything was anki-dory in day one but after six months company is changing and not everybody are well aligned as before but that's a fascinating thing uh, co-founders absolutely the dynamics you know of how to build a team and and how people work together and how some some partnerships are very successful and sometimes certain people it's just there isn't that click or there isn't a good fit But I think this message that, you know, you've been saying about being very aware of the problems, of the clues along the way, having a kind of sobering, realistic view of things while dreaming and moving forward, but being very aware of all of the clues popping up can help you along the way and to fare, fare the storm. Uh, exactly, exactly. Wonderful. Okay. Ben, thank you so much for taking a part in the Unicorn series and for this wonderful conversation. Thanks for the time and inviting me, and I, I really enjoyed it. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. Thank you for listening. Until next time.